And so we're now back in the book of Acts. And we've spent quite a while in the book of Acts. And we last left off uh, at the end of uh, chapter 11. So we're going to start Acts 12 today. And just to catch you up, you know, uh, previously on the book of Acts, in chapter 9, we had the conversion of Saul, one of the most miraculous stories uh, in the Bible. Uh, In chapter 10, uh, we have another miraculous story. Peter receives a vision to go meet a man named Cornelius. And he has this sheet descending from heaven with all kinds of unclean animals on it. And a voice from heaven tells him, all right, Peter, rise, kill, and eat these. And Peter protests, as Peter normally would protest, and, and, and he says, Lord, I, I've never done anything to defile myself. I, I'm, I'm not going to. And, and God says to him, what God has declared unclean, you can't get declared unclean. So he goes and meets with Cornelius, who's a Gentile, and preaches the gospel to them of Jesus Christ, and they receive the same Holy Spirit. And then we go to chapter 11, and Peter heads back to Jerusalem. There's a little bit of an uproar that Peter, one of the leaders of the church, has eaten and, and, and been with people that were ceremonially unclean, the Gentiles. And so Peter tells, up what, tells them what, what happened. And in chapter 11, verse 18, it says, When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that, believe, that leads unto life. And for most of us here today that are not of a Jewish background, we should be very thankful for the events of this that the gospel has been opened up to us that are not of the Jewish faith. Uh, There's some other things going on in chapter 11. Saul and Barnabas get together. They determine uh, to send, uh, Paul and Barnabas spend some time in Antioch. Antioch is the first place where believers were called Christians. Uh, That's a pretty famous uh, saying from the Bible. And then they determined to send famine relief down to Judea, as someone had prophesied that there would be a famine there. So we pick up our reading starting in Acts 12, and we're going to cover the whole chapter today. So it's printed in your bulletin. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Acts 12, verses 1 through 25. And here's God's word. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was done during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him into prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first and the second guard, they came to an iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came and answered. Recognizing Peter's voice, 
In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning with them, to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod had searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing them with John, whose other name was Mark. This is the reading of God's word. Now, a major player in this is Herod. And there are, Herod is a title that's similar to king. And if you trace it out, there are actually six Herods that are referenced at different points in the Bible. And we're not going to get into each one of them or how the Herodian dynasty came to be. It only lasted 150 years. But it's important to look a little bit at the Herod that's, that's mentioned right here. And the one we read of in Acts is Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of the first of the Herodian dynasty. He had a very up and down life in Rome, but due to some very good political fortunes and being friends with future emperors, he reunited the territory that his grandfather had had over the course of about four years. He also made the key decision of supporting the right person in succession to the Roman throne. And for his efforts, he was rewarded the rank of Roman consul something that someone, a non-Roman, had never really had before. Coins minted under his rule that he had done had Herod the Great inscribed on them. And this was a title that was approved by the Roman Senate. Being pleased with his action, there was no equivalent to a Roman governor, like one we read of like Pontius Pilate, that Rome sent during his time of ruling over that area. But his reign in that area would last only three years. He made it a mission to promote traditional Jewish concerns and helped with the fortification of Jerusalem by building another wall and made quite a few improvements to the second temple. He was known to be relatively friendly to Jewish religion and practices as well. And so it's clear from verse 1 as we start reading that he felt the way to gain more favor with the Jewish leadership was to persecute and torture known members of the church. And having such a high-profile leader, like one of James, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he couldn't resist making a public show of James's execution. Now, keep in mind, about 10 years had passed since the stoning of Stephen, and the church had had about relative tranquility in that area, and it had abundant growth. This likely beheading of James is something that the Jewish leaders would have loved to do. They would have loved to have gotten their hands on James and to have tortured him and put him to death. But they needed the backing of the Roman state to do something like this. Rome typically didn't bother itself with local religious nuisances. 
It was only when the security of the state was threatened that Rome tended to intervene in local politics. So seeing how pleased the Jewish leaders were with what he did with James, he took one of the biggest prizes of all that he could have from the Jewish church. He took Peter. Yet it was the first meal of the week of Passover, and he knew better than to interrupt one of the most sacred Jewish festivals. So he had to wait an entire week. Now, the first thing I want us to see today is the Christian life will be marked by persecution. The Christian life will be marked by persecution. Hopefully during our lifetimes, none of us will be imprisoned like Peter or or the other members of the church that Herod started persecuting or face a beheading like James. But we know this happens to our brothers and sisters in Christ and other parts of the world. Contrary to the prosperity gospel that is so popular today, that if you just believe in Christ or or give your all to Christ, then everything else in your life is going to work out for you. Everything is going to be okay. I'm going to disappoint you this morning. I'm going to promise you something different other than a prosperity gospel. I'm going to promise you a persecution gospel. From 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. From our Lord Jesus himself in John 15, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, I don't know what persecution may look like in your life. It may be exclusion from certain activities at work. You may miss out on a promotion. You may not be able to be part of a committee that someone that you wanted to be a part of. You may lose opportunities to expand your business or grow it in some way. It may be the loss of friends, even friends that you've had since childhood, people that you thought you could count on that are growing apart from the faith as you continue to grow in your faith. It may even be alienation from your family that's just getting a little bit tired of the Jesus talk that you have. It may become in the form of just being made fun of and mocked. It could be the loss of things that you once thought were sacred in America. And there is a time coming, even I believe in the United States of America, where there will probably even be a type of physical persecution for being a Christian. But the question is, how much is Christ worth to you? And before you answer that in your mind, keep in mind that we have all lived and we've all grown up in a largely relatively religious friendly society. But we see that changing more and more each year with the rise of secularism. How much is Christ worth to you? Is following him the worth, the loss of some of those friends, of the opportunities at work, of people around you laughing behind your back when you're not when you're not there, of family not wanting anything to do with you and anything to do with your Jesus freak ideas? Is it worth the loss of your rights? that we've just taken for granted that we might have here in America. To these early apostles, it was worth all of that and so much more, even to their very bodies and their very lives. Listen to what Peter himself wrote in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This coming from a man who actually went through not just insults as we would typically use the word insult today, but bodily harm and affliction, even to his death, rejoicing that he suffered for the name of Christ. As a church in America continues to be satisfied with weekly motivational messages that, that, that want to make us feel better about ourselves and, and want to rev us up for the next week to succeed and be our best, and false teachings of a prosperity gospel about how to live a better life or be a better person, the less the church is ready for persecution that is here and persecution that is coming. We sing in Christ alone, and I have no doubt that most of us believe that and would affirm in Christ alone for salvation. But do we actually live in Christ alone? Listen to what we sang in the fourth verse. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Do we really live our lives in Christ alone, no matter what schemes of man or what power of hell may be thrown against us? The question for us here today is, will we run from persecution and hide our relationship with Christ, or will we rejoice that we've been counted worthy to suffer for his name? But the truth in all of this is we don't face persecution alone. The second thing I want us to see is that we serve a God of the impossible. We serve a God of the impossible. Now, Peter wasn't just arrested and put into any regular prison cell, which was probably pretty secure on its own. No, Herod didn't want to let Peter get away. That would have looked pretty bad for him. So he went way above and beyond in how he secured Peter. He brought in four squads of soldiers. Now, what we know from historical writings is that a squad of soldiers was four men. So four squads of four men would have been 16 men whose sole purpose beyond the rest of the prison was to guard Peter. We see two of them are directly chained to Peter and two would have been outside the door. And what we see written is they would rotate a squad every three hours to make sure that they were completely alert during their watch and they were not sleeping during the time in which they were guarding. One chain of people being tied to Peter wasn't enough. Two chains between each side of Peter were holding him. Herod didn't want Peter getting away by any natural means. Now, I love God's timing on this and how he humbles every feeble attempt of man. This was truly an 11th hour escape. It says in verse 6, Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, so just stop and imagine and, and think between the lines with me. The Passover festival was nearing its completion. Herod had been waiting an entire week for this. He just knew that this was going to be his big crowning achievement of bringing Peter out for his public execution. But he's probably putting on his finest robes, his jewelry to parade Peter out before the Jewish leaders. I imagine this guy was just so happy and giddy with what he had done. But then we see the angel of the Lord appear. Peter's sleeping in the cell. This guy, angel had to kick Peter in his side and tell him to wake up. Told him to get up as the chains just miraculously fell off. He put on his sandals and cloak, instructed, and then he followed the man out. Peter thought he might be in a vision. He didn't really know what was going on. They passed one guard and then another, probably several more that we're not even told of. 
And then they get to the gate of the city and the gate just opens on its own. No one would have allowed the gate to open in such a manner. In verse 11, it says, when Peter came to himself and said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Just imagine what Peter felt. He had gone from being expecting to face a certain cruel and humiliating death and now he finds himself free outside of the city. An impossible escape, but not impossible for God. Again, all, we all have our own persecution that we face in life. And if you're like me, my first thought is, okay, how do I minimize it or how do I avoid it? And don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting to run headfirst into the persecution. And the Bible doesn't suggest that we do that either. But we all know how to go along, to get along in certain situations of life. We know how to act a certain way around a certain group of people to just kind of hide that Christianity a little bit. We know how to shy away from the hard conversations to change the subject over to something else pretty quick. We know not to bring up anything that shows the Jesus flag that we carry. But why do we fear the worst of what man can do when we serve the God of the impossible? We teach our children, and they're even downstairs learning, miraculous stories from the Bible as they grow up, and all of the great things that God can do. Daniel being delivered from the lion's den, and, and, and those from the fiery furnace. But as we grow older, our cynicism starts to ramp up just a little bit. We forget the wonder and awe when we first heard those stories, and then we forget that they're actually true, and that God can do it again, and that God has done it over and over throughout history. That group of friends that we hang on to, what if losing them means that God brings along a group of people who are so much better? What if that job that we cling to as our identity and our status and our security, what if we really didn't need it as much as we thought and we are so much happier in a different situation? What if we are scorned by our family, something that is painful and something that is difficult, and we find a family of believers and we truly experience a heavenly father who loves us unconditionally? What if the mocking doesn't bother us? What if the physical pain isn't as bad as we expected? What if the ultimate enemy of death leads us to, directly into the presence of our Savior? We have an entire Bible of God doing the impossible and rewarding those who are faithful to him and who suffer for his name. Listen to Paul's promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No trial has taken, overtaken you that is not faced by others. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tried beyond what you are able to bear. But with the trial, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to endure it. John Calvin wrote of this verse, Therefore once he has taken you under his own faithfulness, you have no need to be afraid so long as you wholly depend on God. We look back to the prophet in Jeremiah 32, 37, where Yahweh says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? We must strengthen our faith in God. And as we believe God more, so will our resolve to stand firm. I was reading the account of a Christian leader in Sri Lanka. As I adjust this back to a reading height. His name was Ajit Fernando. Uh, where Christians encountered violent persecutions in the 1980s. 
And he described five types of outcomes from those that were believers in the situation in Sri Lanka. One, some believers escaped injury and death, oftentimes with miraculous stories. Two, some believers suffered greatly, but yet continued to be an effective witness for the gospel and the sustaining grace of God. Number three, the faith of some believers was shattered and they never recovered from the bitterness. Number four, some believers compromised in order to avoid pain. Five, some people realized the unreliability of earthly possessions and they turned to God for their security. And his final comment about this was, whatever experiences God's providence permits us to go through, our primary commitment should be to obedience. Whatever experiences God's providence permits us to go through, our primary commitment should be to obedience. What would our lives, what would our church look like if we took our eyes off the earthly, looked to the eternal, and actually believed God that nothing is too hard for him? Third, I want us to see that prayer should be the default response to difficulty. <clears throat> prayer should be the default response to difficulty. Now, I love this story about Rhoda. This is, I just would love to see this played out as almost a comedy. How excited she was to hear Peter's voice that she didn't even think to open the gate to let him in. She just ran upstairs. Peter's had this miraculous escape, and he's standing there knocking at a door where they would gladly let him in, but he can't even get into that door. After all the doors, he's just gotten out. But look back at verse 5. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Then verse 12 where many were gathered together and praying. Why did Peter know where to go next? The angel left him after the city gate had shut. Peter knew where to go because he knew what the church would be doing. They would be praying. They wouldn't be hiding. They wouldn't have run. They would be gathered together praying for him in his time of need. Remember, Peter had been locked up for nearly an entire week, so the church had been praying this entire time. No doubt among them were people who had been beaten just for Herod's amusement, but weren't deemed to be high profile enough for execution. The early church's faith was molded in the fires of persecution, bringing them closer to each other and closer to God. Why? Because they had nowhere else to go. They had no other recourse to pursue. Now hear me well. We live in a democratic republic, and we should responsibly participate in that society. But is our first response to complain about our violation of our rights? Or is our first response to go before the King of Kings and bring our troubles to him? Do we rely on the leaders of the land more than we rely on the God of all creation? If we truly trust God, we know that we cannot manipulate God into getting what we want or what we desire or the things that we wish for. Trusting God implies that we have confidence that God will give strength to endure suffering courage to endure execution, and boldness to be a witness of God's power and grace, even right up to the very end, if that's where it leads. Hear these words from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 41. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you.
And finally, this morning, all glory belongs to God alone. All glory belongs to God alone. In verses 20 to 25, we have this final short story that really wraps up the time of, quote, Herod the Great. In spite of the favor that he had received from the emperor, the uniting of the Herodians with the Roman government, the favor he had gained with the Jews in the region, he left Jerusalem after this debacle with Peter and went up to Caesarea, uh, <coughs> northwest uh, along the Mediterranean Sea. And I think this detail of the change of location is important because the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem would not have allowed the kind of praise that he was about to receive from people, no matter how friendly he was to them. Now, history doesn't tell us the details of this specific peace accord with Tyre and Sidon, but starting in verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The reign of the so-called Herod the Great was three years, AD 41 through 44. His last day was the day which he may have deemed his most triumphant. However, history would only remember him as Agrippa I, and the Herodian dynasty would end with his son, Agrippa II, who we'll read of later in Acts. The title Herod of the Great would fall back upon his grandfather in history. All rulers who set themselves against Yahweh will be brought down, no matter how mighty they may seem. No matter how much they may come against the church of God, they will not prevail. And in this case, Herod the Great died on the spot, and his body was consumed by worms. Psalm 2 tells us, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and take, the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Whatever may come on the geopolitical stage as we watch it unfolding on the news every night. And it can be seen very frightening at this moment. God sits in heaven and laughs at the plans of men. Our God sits on the throne of heaven. He will not be moved. Therefore, we should not be shaken. Though we may time to time fret and worry about what is going on in our life and wonder, where is God? We should rest in the fact that all glory belongs to him and him alone. Paul again speaking in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The Christian life will be marked by persecution, but we serve the God of the impossible. Prayer should be the default response to persecution, and all glory belongs to God alone. So where's your faith in this morning? Where's your faith in? Is it in your job, your bank account? Hopefully not the stock market or crypto. It's your friends, your intellect, your abilities, or is it in God, the maker of heaven and earth? And think about it. Do you fear persecution? As a follower of Christ, know that it will come. But we don't fear as others because we have the promises of God that it will never be more than we can bear and will be able to endure it as long as we are obedient, trust, and follow God.
Is our response a difficulty to figure out and fix it? Or is it a response of prayer and faith in God? Finally, all glory belongs to God alone. And do we give God the glory with our lives? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for those who've gone before us, <coughs> who have suffered for your name. We thank you that they stood firm, that you protected and guided your church, even, though the, even through supernatural means, that the gospel was increased and multiplied down, and even to us today. I pray that we would be stewards of what we have received, that we would follow the example that they set for us. May we remain faithful through whatever persecution comes. May we be faithful in prayer. And may you receive all the glory in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.